Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. My name is Rachel, and I am here with my lovely co-host, Hannah. And today we are going to be discussing a our first piece of uh, creative nonfiction that is titled The Earth Moved on the Remarkable Accomplishments of Earthworms by Amy Stewart. This book was different than anything we've done. It is, as the title would suggest, based in um, earthworm biology and earthworm history. Um, Hannah, do you think it might be prudent to give just a brief summary of what the book is all about before we dive in? Sure. So, um, Stuart, uh, Rachel put this really well in our production meeting. It's like someone explaining their latest hyperfixation to you. Um, Stuart does a deep dive on the history of earthworm science. So that really starts uh, with Darwin. Uh, so you get that good, good enlightenment science stuff. Um, she talks about earthworm biology, earthworm taxonomy, the evolution of earthworms, earthworm ecology, and uh, even the economic applications of earthworms and how they can contribute to uh, agriculture and waste management. Um, and just, I think the, the main theme of the book is how these tiny, small, uh, inconspicuous creatures contribute to these very large impacts in various areas of our lives whether we realize it or not yeah I, I think that's definitely the most important idea to come out of the book and I think she starts laying the groundwork for that pretty early um, because I can tell you I know very little about a lot of things <laughs> uh, and um, a lot of you will know this because uh, I think it might be interesting to talk about how we come from very different Academically speaking, we come from very different scientific backgrounds. I've talked about this on the show before. Originally, way before I started um, in English, I wanted to do English the whole time I was in high school. And then at my high school, if you got such and such on standardized tests, they wanted you to go into STEM, whether you wanted to or not. So I drank that Kool-Aid. Um, and I got accepted to um, a program that culminated in a doctorate of pharmacy, which would have been super dope if I didn't hate it every second of the day um and it was almost kind of sad that I, I ended up not liking it and I did end up dropping out switching to English where I was much happier because I I very much enjoyed my science classes like I loved my anatomy class I loved the anatomy labs I loved bio chemistry organic chemistry can go fuck itself but like real talk. Re regular chemistry was was fine and I think the problem always was I just I don't know if there's some truth to the fact that even if metaphorically my brain wasn't wired to it as much as it is to the humanities but I could not get stuff in an adequate amount of time to do well on the exams and then sometimes that's just how it is with a subject but I always found stuff very very interesting because it's just stuff that especially as I moved forward in the other two degrees I have I had less and less exposure to um, which is, in a way, something I, I kind of regret 
about how I went about my college experience because I ended up doing enough that I graduated a year early, but at the expense of not really taking classes outside of my major that I wanted to take. Now, granted, a lot of that, especially in college, is a money and time issue, not just a time issue. Because mm-hmm. um, you have to pay to go to college. Yeah. Um, or they'll give you really high interest loans so you can go to college. Um, it's so, I, I think now that I'm a little older, I still am boggled by the fact that I'm closer to 30 than 20 now. Um, it's like, oh, wait, there's things out in the world and people doing work specifically to bring people who don't necessarily have a super technical scientific background in any given study um, and to help those people learn about new things. Because I think that's one of the th- one of the things that I found very endearing about this book is Amy Stewart is the kind of person that I think really went into this thinking if I cannot explain this in a way that a person who has absolutely no background in this will 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 still understand it, then I don't understand it. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, for sure. It was a very straightforward, uh, pretty low jargon mm-hmm. uh, nonfiction. It was very approachable, very friendly. Um, I appreciated that. But, like, that's not the level that I'm at. So I was a little bit mm-hmm. like, okay, Amy, like, can we step it up a little bit? But that's... Yeah, I was pretty sure you were going to be like, what's this elementary school shit? <laughs> but, I mean, I appreciate what she's doing because not everyone is... Most people are not approaching it from the angle that I am uh, because... Uh, well, Ra- Rachel did not complete her pharmacy program which is totally understandable i respect that that's not a field you want to get into if you don't love it i my undergrad degree is in biology so i did finish um and i was (laughs) like rachel i was planning to get my phd uh in in biology um and it did not work out because it turns out i'm very bad at bench work and and I was already sleeping uh, in the lab as an undergraduate, so I'm like, the work-life balance is not going to be here for me. Um, so I had every intention of being a geneticist. So um, I, I mean, I know a lot of the stuff that's already in here. I did not know the stuff about giant earthworms, but a lot of the... <laughs> My favorites, the giant earthworms. Yeah. Um, a lot of the concepts were already very familiar, uh, to me. Um, I had to, um, as part of Bio 200, I don't know if you had to take a Bio 200, Mm -hmm. but, um, as part of Bio 200, you have to memorize, um, all of the kingdoms, phylums, classes, orders, and I think we got down, I think you go down to order and you stop. Um, and it um, is considered a weed out class because the sheer amount of information and detail you have to cram in your brain to tell these orders apart is insane. Like, yeah. I can't do it anymore. That all got dumped. 
Um, but one of the challenges is that um, so many orders across all of these different uh, groups are quote unquote verbiform, which means worm shaped. <laughs> and I thought every time a new order came up and vermiform was on the PowerPoint slide, at a, after a certain point, I just wanted to scream. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's no way I can... Arthropods, fine, whatever. It's all good. Y'all look totally different. Do you want to talk about segmented worms versus non-segmented worms? And, like, I'm having flashbacks. Like, the... the <sighs> It, how many ends does your digestive tract have and how many layers and how what's your it, it was I can't believe I did it it was crazy mm. and I retained that information for probably like two or three years after I was that annoying person who's like oh no that's not a spider that's you know something else and everyone would be like Hannah no one this is not this is not relevant <laughs> to anyone but you <laughs> They'd be like, that's nice, but I don't know why you're talking about it. Um, so Did I you just need to apply it in real life somehow yeah, from all that I time that you it, spent? I needed it to mean something because it ultimately, like, the thing is, I think that, like, once you, um, once you pick, like, a, that's another thing about science now is it's so hyper specialized mm-hmm. like once you pick like oh I'm gonna be a bird person or I'm gonna be like a bug person I think the other details become less like you just focus in on your area and you get so hyper fixated on it that you can't even like explain it to other people anymore um which is ultimately that did happen to me but with um, but with a, a protein, uh, a class of proteins called intines, which I will not discuss <laughs> with you here. But if anyone else is into molecular biology, hit me up on Twitter. We'll chat, <laughs> but not here. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I did a thesis um, as an undergraduate, so I've been through the process of doing research and like having it be like your whole life (laughs) for like a year so um that ultimately wasn't for me and I decided I was going to do a support class essentially um (laughs) that's a good uh, way to put it librarians are the are the the ultimate support class of the world yeah so I mean we do have very different I think um approaches and and understandings when it comes to science so it was definitely like okay but like tell me more about these um like tell me more about the molecular mechanisms behind earthworm science like I want to know what's happening at that level so um but I don't know that I'm the intended audience for this book so (laughs) that is an interesting point when, when, because I think that's a big part of, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, dissecting, uh, create any creative nonfiction, but especially nonfiction that is rooted in an established discipline mm-hmm. where you have people, um, like you who will have the more specialized knowledge 
that maybe the author doesn't feel it prudent to get into for what they feel their audience will be. Now, some of that also might be a marketability issue that's been handed down by the publisher, but I think in this case, and from what I've read of Amy Stewart's other books, she really likes to make things accessible, which as a person, as a layperson who often wants to know more about subjects that I didn't get the chance to learn about in school, I I appreciate that, but I also understand that I'm also like, in those cases, I'm usually the intended audience. Like, a lot of um, the worm scientists she she talks to, I keep calling them ornithologists, and that's not the truth, that's bird sciences. (laughs) Yes. Um, But it sounds fairly similar. It's it's another Mm -hmm. O name. Um, But she... Uh, talks to a lot of these scientists who have studied worms their entire lives and there's one his name's sam who like works as a manager at a trucking company now because you do not get funding you do not get recognition and that to me was it made it started me thinking about what i think is another big idea in this book and it's the idea of how intended audiences like like me like i would consider myself part of the medium scientific literate public people who know enough to be dangerous but don't <laughs> they do not have the specialized knowledge that someone who works or has studied extensively in that field would have but the thing is yeah. those that first group is the majority <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they're the people who are influencing public opinion. And public opinion, as we all know, is a bit of a beast. And it's it, it almost made me kind of sad when they were, there was a section where she's talking about um, the differences in how earthworm studies, even though as detailed throughout the rest of the book, there's there's so much fascinating research to still be done it doesn't get the recognition because think about the kind of stuff that we I say we, the royal we as a society kind of value and my my immediate thought was save the whales <laughs> and thinking about butterflies and how there's been a whole conversation about bee populations and that's exploded in the past few years and, and she's not saying that any of that is bad. None of those things are bad to have and it's placing a value system is ultimately something that cannot be sustainable but it's the whole thing of thinking about and thinking critically about why we support those causes and often disregard something like earthworms which are a little gross they're very neat they're a very neat animal and they do very good work but they're a little gross and um (laughs) why beauty is almost something that we take into account with stuff like that. And some of it might be because I think we as people are drawn to aesthetics and all and all that mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, why would we breed dogs and cats the way we do if we didn't? Um, but yeah. it's 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 it ma- it made me think more about the role of scientific literacy in that. Mhm. Because there's, there's a brief section where this one scientist talks about, like, there's an anatomically correct, like, plastic worm doll that you can use to teach people about how they work. And there's posters and how, like, this person had found all this stuff and they were so excited because it was so rare. Because mm-hmm. everyone's just like, oh, they're the little slimy, like, noodle-looking things. Yes. 
And to be fair, they are slimy noodles, but they <laughs> they do so much. Like, just the math that Stuart does throughout some of the book is really fascinating to me because I, I like the math to help me conceptualize things mm-hmm. and about how, like, I don't remember the exact numbers, unfortunately, because I have the audiobook and not the paper book as, as per usual. But it's something like 50,000 worms can move 200 tons of earth on an acre per year. Oh, I think I have this in our notes. Yeah, it's Ugh. it's something crazy. Uh, maybe I don't. Oh, uh, the issue is saying in the Nile, they can produce a thousand tons of castings per acre. Or something insane. Yes. It's something insane, but in any case, it's... When we think about worms, we think about one worm and how they're like the little two to three inch guys that sometimes you save from the rain on the sidewalk and put them back in the grass. But if you think about how fucking many of them there are and how one worm can do X. So if you get thousands or millions, because Stuart talks about how a lot of estimates of how many worms there are on the earth is actually an underestimate, um, how much they can do. And that kind of ties into the title the earth moved um one of the things that i've actually been like talking to friends and family and co-workers about because i'm like my mind was so blown even though it's so simple one of the things that darwin thought about to prove uh continental drift essentially is mm-hmm. earthworms can't cross salt water so how can there be identical worms in somewhere like south america versus africa Yes. Or North America and Australia and things like that. That means it had to be one landmass at one point. And I'm like, why did I not learn about this? Like, it's, there's so much stuff in the book that I'm like, why don't I know this? Because as much as it would have made, it would have made more sense if I had taken the same class as you did. And that's mm-hmm. where you find the specialized knowledge. But I'm like, why are you keeping this from the public? <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things is um, that perplexed Darwin of, <laughs> is that he's like, okay, well, birds can fly and other animals can swim. So, like, that must explain why they're such similar creatures on different um, continents. And then people were like, well, what about worms? And he went, mm. and it was like a couple years later that someone was like, ta-da, it's continental drift. And the whole scientific community went, oh, okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) That was the same thing that happened with DNA. We were all like, okay, good, great. Glad that's settled then. Yeah, glad we've worked that out. Oh, I was going to mention, too, like, you know, when you talk about, um, like, science and what we choose to focus on as a society in our research pursuits – I think there's actually kind of a trend in in research and higher education to go to move towards things that you can patent and that you can mm. monetize. And um, Stuart does talk about that at the end of the book. Like there are attempts to monetize earthworms, right? To yeah. use them in um, agriculture and um, waste management. And that those things are sort of at the very edge of um, what is happening right now. And I didn't do any follow-up research because this book came out, I think, several years ago now. Yeah, I think it was 2004. 
So, um, I don't know, maybe we'll provide some follow-up for you and let you know where the economics of earthworms stand now, because I'm kind of curious, but it was sort of like, you can, (laughs) I mean, will people start studying earthworms if we can monetize them? Is that, like, what we really want to be doing? Like, I guess it comes down to, like, what you think the point of science is, and, you know, is it to create things that we can monetize? Does it have to be purely for the advancement? of um humankind or or Mm -hmm. is there something to be said for just the the pursuit of of knowledge and understanding of the universe does it make us better and more empathetic people to understand about earthworms you know yeah these are my questions (laughs) yeah and and i i really like that you brought up the topic of empathy because that's something Stuart talks about when, um, a thing that was interesting to me over the course of the book, and she mentions this pretty explicitly with, I think it's still Sam, the trucker who goes to Panama for worms. Um, he has this big, um, like an office lab combo where he's got like this bookshelf with all these samples that are labeled. And she's like, you know, you look like a 19th century naturalist, right? And it, it, that comment was, was interesting to me because it kind of brought home in a lot of the, in a lot of ways, like it's changing now, as you said, but in a lot of ways, a lot of worm research is kind of exactly the same as it was when Darwin started, like a lot, of, like a field research where you're trying to just figure out how the hell do these little noodles work? Because you can go to space, you can go to the ocean, you can have a drone fly up and observe birds and all that good stuff. How do you get under the ground? Right, and and Stuart talks about that a little bit too, how, um, you know, even just putting something in the ground to try and observe earthworms, like, they don't like it, they can feel it, and they go away. Mm. Um, And that they're really hard to keep in captivity, Um, And some people have successfully, but there's only, like, two or so of the really big ones. They're particularly hard um, to to manage in captivity, so it's really hard to study them. It's even really hard to tell them apart. Like, you have to cut them open (laughs) to be able to tell them apart. So that's, you know, challenging. Um, The other thing that I found really interesting is that most of the earthworms that me and you are familiar with are actually an invasive species from Mm -hmm. Europe um which is like I'm not going to talk about colonization I guess in this episode but um (laughs) we can I mean I'm right there with you at this point uh this book fueled my never-ending hatred of golf courses yeah because um, there's that section where they talk about the forest and how mm-hmm. all these worms are eating all the um, the leaf fall in the winter. So there's no, like, new growth in the spring where it, it would usually be. Um, and it was harming other insect populations. And, like, the deer weren't getting as much to eat because they had a golf course installed near this forest. And they brought, like, 200 tons of sod or something and mm-hmm. with all these plants and they're thinking do you have any idea how many worms are in that yes and i hadn't i had no idea because mm-hmm. it's not something i've ever thought about where i'm like oh yeah worms live in dirt you transport the dirt 
they're like two to three inches. What are you going to do? Sift them all out? You can't. Yeah. And then those worms by yards per year, but they get, they get on, they get on moving. They start traveling to other areas immediately surround. They go where the food is and they start taking over. And, and it's so weird to have something that is seemingly so natural and to a lot of people, they all look the same is something that is actually invasive I mean, the crazy thing, too, is that we have native earthworms, and I didn't know that there was such a thing, um, and some of them are wild. Like, there's a giant five-foot-long earthworm in Oregon that sprays, like, lily thing, uh, that sprays, like, lily-scented fluid at predators. Like, bizarre. So strange. That that is a thing that exists in the world. And I had no idea that that that, that was a thing. Yeah. And, you know, it might be extinct now because of um, it's so sensitive to human encroachment and, like, the vibrations of traffic and, and everything. So that's insane. And, like, there's a worm that's so delicate that it, it's huge. But if you pick it up, it'll, like, explode. Yeah. Because its skin skin is so delicate. Yeah, but, like, it's, like, trucking down underneath the earth under, like, tens of, like, hundreds of pounds of dirt. And and it's, like, how does that work? That's so amazing. But, like, we'll never be able to study it because if we study it, we'll probably pop it. (laughs) Right. Like, like it's it's a whole thing of, it reminded me of, this is more about physics, but the whole thing of if you observe... I guess it's not just about physics, but the example I always I always heard was you're never going to really know the position of an of an, an electron because by observing it you change it. I mm-hmm. think that was the example I always heard, but it, it's the same with any kind of system. By making yourself a part of it by by being an observer, you are changing it yeah. from its natural state. I mean, that's a problem from particle physics all the way up to like anthropology right Mm -hmm. like that problem doesn't go away yeah and um it's so interesting um to me that that is a thing like one of the things i learned um during my (laughs) tenure as a baby scientist uh in undergrad is that the way that we study proteins is wrong um we like to study proteins in a dilute solution that is, we put a little bit of protein in a lot of water, and then mm-hmm. we let it go to work, and we measure the outcome. But um, the inside of cells are actually very crowded. And um, when you put proteins into a solution with a lot of stuff in it, they work differently than they do in a dilute solution. So, um, all of the figures in textbooks and stuff are based off of these dilute solutions, but that's not how things work in the cell. And, uh, what's, what boggles the mind about that is that, like, when we're doing, like, drug testing or medical science, like, the, (laughs) we, we actually don't know how fast these proteins can work. And that is sort of problematic because that's the whole proteins are what make you go and yeah. uh so it's so funny uh to me that we just 
have been doing it like in a way that's good enough but is still wrong <laughs> and and that's what this book kind of reminded me of is that um you know there's so much we don't understand and we'll never know what we don't know and I guess that's why value judgments about research topics and how we funnel so much money into, into these areas we perceive as being you know um important or the most easily monetized mm-hmm. like drives me a little bit nuts because how how will we know you know it's like we're trying to predict the future and that's not within our our powers so yeah there was a, the whole section about how there was research at one point into how worms regenerate how worms regenerate is fucking fascinating and we know next to nothing about how it actually works we just know that like this is a thing that happens and i'm like okay that seems like something that would be good to know <laughs> and you 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 wrote in our show notes that it 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 was very fr- frankenstein it was very frankenstein of what what these people were like like cutting worms up and sewing them back together and I, and there was something almost viscerally I almost want to say disturbing about it to me, especially because it comes after Stuart's discussion of earthworm like intelligence. Okay, and I also want to talk about how I don't like one hundred percent buy that, but I'm intrigued by the idea of earthworm yeah. intelligence. So, like, I don't know. So the argument is that earthworms pull leaf litter into their little worm burrows. Um, based on, like, what shape it is and how easily that shape, like, it, it won't pull the base of a triangle into its layer. It'll pull the tip of the triangle because it's easier for it to do. And I'm not 100% sure. Cause so, so they mostly pull things in by whatever makes sense, like, physically for things to go in the burrow. Mm-hmm. So, like, a Darwin is like, okay, so they're making decisions. And I don't know if I necessarily buy that the earthworms are making that decision or or what's really going on with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because people are talking about, like, how um, an article I read a couple years ago was talking about there is some way that our cells, like our individual cells, can do basic arithmetic. And they haven't figured out how. You missed the know... face journey I just went on. I know, I know. I'll find the article for you guys. Maybe I'll do some follow-up science articles for you all for this one. Um, but but there's some way that our cells can do math. And, and, like, are our cells intelligent because they can add numbers together? Like, what? Like where is our threshold? But I'm also concerned because, like, that's my big thing about artificial intelligence that we've talked about in the past, right, is that... Um, how, how do we know if things are intelligent? Because other intelligences might not look like our intelligence. So mm-hmm. um, so the fact that, like, that is an ethical dilemma. Like, when you do um, biological research, especially at the organism level, because, like, are these thinking, feeling creatures? How do we, how do we know? Um, and are the benefits of what we are doing worth the you know are they worth cutting another thing open and sewing it back together and like you know it's (laughs) I don't know I come down kind of on both sides of the fence of 
on the fence of that because it's not like I'm a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> it's not like I don't think we need, need to do animal testing in some cases. It's just like, you know, we really, we really shouldn't be taking the concept of animal intelligence, like, for granted as, like, we are the superior and intellectual species. It's just, you know, how, how do you quantify, does a redwood have intelligence? Like, how, how do you measure that? Like, we can't give a redwood tree an IQ test. I mean, they don't even work that well anyway. (laughs) But, But, like, you know what I mean? Like, the ways that we are measuring intelligence could be broken isn't like you don't give a fish a bicycle right like you mm-hmm. can't that's the thing so yeah you don't make a fish climb a tree yeah like it's not um yeah so i just i get kind of like wiggly about it because it's it's i don't know what to think and i'm and there's like some balance there but i think we need to be thoughtful about it and I don't know that people necessarily are always thoughtful. I mean, there's a long history of scientists not being particularly thoughtful. And I think that's part of what Frankenstein is about and part of why the connection came up is because, like, we you really need to approach things, you know, with intention mm-hmm. and compassion and empathy when you do this research. And I think a lot of the modern narrative around scientists as, like, cold calculating um, kind of like these neurotic um, geniuses with no moral compass. I don't. I really hate that as a narrative because I feel like it attracts the wrong people to the to the field. But that's no. That's I think that's fair. There. I think that's fair because I I've almost like experienced that in some weird way, where when I made the switch from a science-based major to a humanities-based major, there's a distinct difference, especially at the undergraduate level, I think. It becomes more pronounced as you move forward, but I think it's it's visible at the undergraduate level. There is a difference in intention, I think, with people who choose... Uh, it's, it's, kind, it's still kind of apples to oranges, but people who choose a more scientific or monetizable pursuit than people who pick something that is seen as more of a soft subject. Because I think the stereotype is people who who pick something that's never going to make them much money, oh, they must be doing that because they love it. Mm-hmm. Um, versus something like, like, we really all do need to just group up and oppress business majors. Um, <laughs> the arts versus science debate is moot. Um, but it's, there's another stereotype to deal with there where, like, and uh, some people bear it out, that people get into stuff, particularly medical fields, lawyers, people, like, some, some business uh, areas, people get into that for the money. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, I genuinely believe that is true. It's on an individual by individual basis. Some people get into that stuff because they're like, this is how I'm going to help the world and God love you and speed, Godspeed be with you. But it's not something that I think is just a, a, a stereotype that, that's unfounded. It is on an individual basis and I think making the big wide sweeping generalizations, especially about scientists being very 
cold and calculating while like all the fucking creative writing majors must be the most empathetic people in the universe because that shit ain't true um (laughs) i i think that does much more harm than good like it doesn't it doesn't get anybody behind your cases to why x subject is important Mm -hmm. in my experience it's like because not not every no group of people even if they have a common interest those people are not all going to be homogenous. No. I I also this is a fun this is a fun story. I cannot express the sense of alienation I felt um, as someone who carried an English minor uh, with a science major for I I ultimately didn't get the English minor. I was one class short. Um, but I decided I needed to take an anatomy and physiology, mm. or I needed to take an animal physiology course um, instead of finishing my English minor, which I know, I mean, I learned some cool stuff about moles that I will carry with me for the rest <laughs> of my life. Their hemoglobin is off the chain, y'all. Um, but but um, I, I cannot express the alienation I felt as a biology major in an English course where... Uh, science like a like studying science came up and um like the the reaction in the room was like we're not those people like what do you expect Mm -hmm. of us like we can't like we're not scientists like with that derision and it was just like okay but maybe one of us is how how are you all gonna process that (laughs) you know no, that's real, and I, I didn't get much of it because I was not... I, I, I came from minimal scientific backgrounds, but it was... I still knew enough to be like, you understand that's not how prescriptions work, right? Like, it was... <laughs> it was one of those things where... And most... To be fair, most of the time I was yelling at my father to take his prescription. You, you have to take things the way they're prescribed or they won't work. Point blank. Yeah. That is the one hill I will fucking die on. You need to take things the way they're prescribed. Do not stop your antibiotics halfway through. You're just, no. You're just fucking yourself at that point. Anyway, it's it, it was weird because I felt very much in between things that mm-hmm. that first year. My second year when I was in like my 300 level classes, not so much. Because at that point... I'm, there's no one there doing their gen ed requirements like it's just all of us hanging out um but i think there is a tendency to separate yourself into into a camp and as a person who has high level degrees in english a thing that i think people talk about that myth or not is is prevalent in how a lot of people think and this is not just an english thing the idea of how funding impacts academic cultures as far as like who is and is not seen as vital to their institution is something that is very prevalent in how a lot of people think about their subject and how they defend their subjects um it's worse at some colleges than others and i think in some ways that almost the fear blows things out of proportion because that might go back to how what we value and why Mm because a lot of the english classes i have taken at both the undergrad and the master's level has kind of been like in some ways this only happened like once or twice 
but in some cases people kind of like really buy into the myth that people think that studying English at a high level doesn't matter. And to mm-hmm. some people I'm sure it doesn't. Like to some people study getting a PhD in biology doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> like there's always going to be someone who doesn't give a fuck. Like that that that's just how it is. And you cannot change those people's minds. There is no point in trying at some point. You just got to do your own thing. But that causes an almost paranoia, I think, at the in the especially in the upper echelons of, of academia, where you're you're bid into the institution and the funding they'll dole out to you, but also to like the culture of the students that come in and what they, students have to choose to take your program, mm-hmm. and that is something that I think causes a lot of anxiety for certain people. I might end up being one of those people. Who knows? One day I'll have tenure and I'll just teach all my master's students and I'll be that weird, crazy lady. And that's just, that's my career path at this point. (laughs) But it's, it is something that I think leads to division. Mm -hmm. And that is something that trickles down from departments to students. And some students Mm -hmm. come into it with that division already in their heads. And some of it is just the, like, there were a couple people I met. I actually don't remember many of their names, so I can't name names. But there were a couple people I met, and it, it manifested very differently in women and men, weirdly mm-hmm. enough. But Is it real weird, though? It's not <laughs> real weird. It was kind of like, I think a lot of girls, because I was one of these people, a lot of that kind of manifested into an almost echo of that I'm not like other girls thing. Where you, you want to be special and you want to, like, make your art so that you feel special. And I think that's something that is obviously not just a thing girls and young women experience. Um, but that's something that seems almost, like, integral to the growing up process. Um, but for the most part, I saw it manifest almost as, like, an insecurity in all genders, but it, it, it in women it was seen as more defensive. With the men that I met, especially weirdly enough, professors, one particular professor whose name I will not mention because he is an asshole who would sue me. Um, he, you know who you are if you don't listen to this podcast, but if you ever did, you know who you are. Um, he was so offensive. Not offensive, offensive. Where he had this idea that he was just better than everyone else and there's people like that in every um every discipline there always will be it's just a thing because there's people like that out in the world but it was so weird how this guy thought he was like the hot shit and that trickled down to some of the guys in our class and i'm just like don't do it don't listen to him because that is a thing that will only work in the controlled environment of this classroom that we're in on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. Like if you go out of the world and you act like that, you're going to get your ass handed to you. Like, don't do that. And, and, and I'm not really sure where this is going anymore, but it's, it's, it just feels weird how those value judgments that we're making on a societal level about what's important can trickle down to what people choose to study when they go to college and, like, they have the careers they choose for themselves when they're 18, even though you don't have to pick who you want to be for the rest of your life when you're 18. Don't do that. That's a lie. I mean, you can, but you can also change it later. It's okay, kids. It's It's not an obligation. If someone is telling you that, 
they're lying to you. We can attest. Yeah, Rachel is not a pharmacist. I am not a geneticist. No. <laughs> it's okay. You can change your mind. And you'll probably be happier with the decision you make at 22 versus the decision you make at 18. Yes. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, like, who's to say... That's my thing. Who's to say earthworms are not important? Yes. And um, I think to kind of move towards a conclusion mm-hmm. um like this book kind of celebrates the beauty and the complexity of something that is so small and so normally belie- beneath our our notice like literally and figuratively mm-hmm. um and that's such a wonderful and humbling mindset to get into that I think I just really enjoyed that, like the ability to take a step back and really look at something that I hadn't before and to really appreciate it um, and to understand it better. And I mean, that's for me what science should be is a celebration of the beauty and complexity of the universe. Um, And that's very like touchy-feely. Uh, but that's just how it, it, I am, so you, you can live with that. But, like, yeah, I mean, that that's the thing is uh, earthworms, you know, are beautiful and complicated. And um, even if they are, you know, slimy noodles. Okay, robots, that's going to do us for this episode of Remedial Studies on Amy Stewart's The Earth Moved on the Acom- Remarkable Accomplishments of Earthworms. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We, we've been a little loosey-goosey with scheduling just because, as I'm sure most of you will very readily understand, uh, life is a thing that happens. Uh, we have a great many things that we are obligated to do in our day-to-day lives that, unfortunately, do not leave us much free time. But we really enjoy doing this show, and we really enjoy hanging out with all of you. Um, next time, we are going to be switching gears once again, and we're going to do our first movie in a little bit. Um, in our first animated feature, we're going to be doing um, Sony Animation's Spider-Man in, in, Into the Spider-Verse, which uh, is, no joke, the best movie I saw last year. So <laughs> I am, Marvel is quaking. Like, Marvel, well, Walt Disney Marvel is quaking. Um, but it is uh, hopefully something that you guys have either seen or can catch up on. I know movies are much easier to to consume both for us and for you um, than books or podcasts or other longer form things. Um, So that should hopefully be a nice way to top off. um, Probably not our August, but we will do our best. Um, If you would like to get in touch with us, Hannah, how can they do that? Okay, so you have some options. We we are (laughs) at Remedial Studies on Twitter. Uh, you can email us at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Tumblr, though that is pretty inactive right now, at mm. remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. We have an Instagram, which is at remedialstudies. Um, so, yeah, I think that is it for socials. I might have done them correctly uh, this time. On the downside, I realized I did not have my pop filter on this whole time. So sorry. <laughs> it's a thing that happens. It's it's, it's fine. It's, it's one thing or another. 
It's one thing or another, and it'll just be what it is at some point. You guys understand. Who are... We're not... We're not... We're not professionals here, fam. No. <laughs> like, no. you don't come to us for that. So... Do you think that's it? We haven't recorded a full episode in so long. Is this where I we know. end? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Rachel, you want to take us out? I got to say the thing. All right. All right, robots. Uh, you will not see us. We will not see you, but you will hear us next time. Goodbye. Bye, robots. <laughs>